One morning in the 1850s, Harriet Hosmer wakes up and senses someone in the room. It's five o'clock. She's sleeping behind a tall screen that wraps around her bed. The doors to her room are locked. She asks if anyone is there. And suddenly, someone is there. Now in front of the screen. It's her former maid, Rosa. Hosmer is in Rome, where, in her 20s, she's become the leading American sculptor of her generation. Rosa speaks to her in Italian. Now I am content. Now I am happy. And then, she's gone. Hosmer leaps out of bed. She looks behind the curtain. She looks in the closet. No Rosa. In fact, Rosa hadn't worked there in some time, since becoming sick with tuberculosis. Hosmer had gone to see her the day before. She seemed to be getting better. And now, this. Hosmer sends a messenger to ask about her, and word comes back that Rosa had died that morning, at exactly five o'clock. Hosmer is not surprised. When she later tells the story to the British Prime Minister and to a writer who puts it in the Atlantic magazine, she says the vision was as real as anything she's ever experienced. In fact, things like this, she says, have been happening to her all her life. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, the story of Harriet Hosmer, whose belief in the supernatural shows up in her work, the sculptures that made her famous, and eventually pulls her away from it. It's a preview of sorts of the exhibition Supernatural America, organized by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and opening this June at the Toledo Museum of Art in Ohio, before going on to the Speed Museum in Louisville and back to Minneapolis next year, featuring Hosmer's Medusa sculpture and many, many other works exploring the haunted nature of American art. And now, on with our ghost story. I'm Tim Gehring. When Harriet Hosmer is born, her family begins dying. First her mother, then her two infant brothers, and finally her older sister. Before she's five, tuberculosis takes them all. Now, in the 1830s, it's just Hattie and her father. And her father isn't about to let Hattie get away, too. He's a doctor in Watertown, Massachusetts, a small town about six miles from Boston. And he puts Hattie on an outdoor exercise regimen that's essentially what you do for a boy at the time. 
He gives her a horse and a boat and a pistol. And so Hattie learns to ride the horse and paddle the boat and shoot the pistol. And she does all of them with an almost manic energy. She shoots little animals and stuffs them and fills her room with dead birds and bats and beetles. In a little clay pit under a riverbank, what Hattie calls her secret studio, she starts modeling animals and people, learning the shape of things, making a world of her own. But she's getting kicked out of one school after another. Maybe because she can't stop doing things like uncoupling train cars and putting a death notice for a very much alive neighbor in the newspaper, apparently. So, the good doctor sends her away, about seven miles from home, to Mrs. Sedgwick's progressive school. Now, Elizabeth Sedgwick is no ordinary teacher. And her students are often no ordinary kids. She tells the doctor, I have a reputation for training wild colts. And I will try this one. the Sedgwick School, Hosmer learns Latin and Greek and French and some hygiene. But she also learns what it means to be original, which isn't something girls were usually taught. The Sedgwick House, dubbed The Hive, is a gathering place for people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Nathaniel Hawthorne. And when Hosmer graduates in 1849, she decides to become really original for a woman then, a sculptor. Now, the year before, over in New York State, the Fox sisters, Kate and Maggie, had claimed to hear mysterious noises in their house. They were 11 and 14 at the time. And after daring a spirit to repeat their rappings on the floor, knock, 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 they said they were getting a response. And now, in 1849, they're taking their show on the road, asking spirits yes or no questions, or to spell out their answers in code. The Rochester Rappings, they're called. And like everyone else, Hosmer is surely aware of them. In fact, after burying most of her family in just a few years, she's sympathetic to the idea that the line between the living and the dead is awfully thin. So, when opportunity knocks, as it were, a chance to study the human body up close and personal with an anatomy professor in St. Louis, even though human dissection is illegal at the time, 
Hosmer's okay with that. And when she finds out how the professor is getting these bodies for dissection, that he goes out at night with a shovel to the local cemeteries and digs them up and requires his students to do the same. She's evidently okay with that, too. Hosmer arrives in St. Louis in 1850, and she sits in the gallery at the Missouri Medical College, the only woman up there, wearing a little brown bonnet. And Dr. Joseph Nash McDowell wheels a cadaver into the center of the room and starts slicing. McDowell is actually a body snatcher and a medium who believes he can communicate with the dead. And he's something of a ghostbuster on call in St. Louis. He also has 1,400 rifles and three cannons in the upper room of the medical school. So that the year before Hosmer arrives, when a mob armed with clubs and axes storms the school, claiming the professor has murdered a woman who disappeared, he's prepared to fight back. But McDowell is no killer. He's a spiritualist. The new movement that's sweeping the country in the wake of the Fox sisters. This idea that, after death, there's no judgment. No one sending you to heaven or hell. There's only release. Into a kind of parallel existence. In which you can move freely through time and space. And communicate, if you so choose, with the living. With all the incredible advances in understanding electricity and magnetism, McDowell is convinced that soon we'll understand not just this world, but that other one. Because the same laws of science will apply. And the supernatural will seem, well, natural. Hosmer spends nine months in St. Louis, studying the body and maybe digging them up, too. At the end, she believes the same as McDowell. She is a spiritualist. It's an appealing idea, right? Especially to women. Most of the mediums and leaders of seances are women. Women shut out of church leadership and public leadership who have few rights to speak of. Because it's liberating, right? In fact, some of the first converts are Quakers, who are also abolitionists. Forget about the petty dictates of man, about who can do what. There's a bigger law out there, a universal law that will set your soul free.
After returning to Massachusetts, Hosmer makes an incredible bust of Hesper, the personification of the evening star that dies at first light, only to be reborn as the morning star. And then she leaves for Rome with her father in 1852. She's 22 years old. She has her diploma in anatomy and two daguerreotypes of her Hesper sculpture. And when she gets to Rome, she presents herself to John Gibson, the Welsh neoclassical sculptor. He's the best there is among the expats and doesn't usually take on students. But then he sees her work. Now, when Hosmer comes to Rome, she comes not just with her father, but also Elizabeth Cushman, the first real celebrity actress. They had met in Boston and in Paris on their way over. They meet up with Cushman's girlfriend, Matilda Hayes, who everyone calls Max. And when they land in Rome, the women all live together in the colony of expat artists. The women call themselves the Jolly Bachelors. And to get Hosmer's dad in the mix, they call him Elizabeth. Hosmer, in her first years there, works from six in the morning to late at night. And once a man asks her what she's doing out by herself, and she spins around and says, you ask my reason for walking so late? This is my reason. And she strikes him across the face with her iron-tipped umbrella. Well, after a year or so, she inevitably meets the spiritual core of the colony, the poets Elizabeth Barrett Browning and her husband Robert, whose house is the nightly salon. Elizabeth describes her as very clever and very strange, living in a house with other, quote, emancipated women. Hosmer and Hayes, she says, both have the gift of spirit writing, in which their hands move automatically, guided by spirits. And one day, in the spring of 1854, Hosmer tells Elizabeth that as she was entering her bedroom, a spirit some three feet high, exquisitely formed, came running, dancing to her from the furthest corner of the room, close up to her knees. And when she bent down to it, it vanished. That same year, in 1854, Hosmer begins working on her Medusa, now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, when it's not traveling with the Supernatural America show. Do you know this story? The quote-unquote true story of Medusa? 
Medusa is a normal human being, right? With some incredibly gorgeous hair. And one day, she goes to the Temple of Minerva to worship the goddess of wisdom. And Neptune pops up and rapes her. And now, Minerva is appalled. Not because Neptune raped Medusa, but because he raped her in Minerva's temple. And so, she takes it out on Medusa, turning her beautiful hair into snakes. And then, Perseus comes along, wanting to be a big hero, and chops off her head. Now, most male artists were like, well, that's what you get, Medusa. Shouldn't have been so hot, right? And they show Medusa as this monster seductress with a head full of phallic snakes. The ultimate femme fatale. Hosmer is like, no. She dispatches a man to the suburbs of Rome to bring her a snake alive. And she chloroforms it and makes a cast. So when she models Medusa's head full of snakes, it looks real. And when she models Medusa's face, it looks real too. A look of horror just as her hair is beginning to turn all serpentine. Like, what the... Because here she is, worshipping this goddess, and suddenly one god is raping her. The god she's worshipping is turning her into a monster. Now this other god is out to kill her. So, Hosmer makes her Medusa, and yet another woman of myth, Daphne, who was running from the rapacious Apollo when her father kindly turned her into a tree. The gods, Hosmer seems to say, are man's invention and haven't done women any favors. The spirits, on the other hand, are another matter. Okay, it's the mid-1850s now, and Hosmer is running out of money. Her father's money, to be clear. So she begins making a puck. You know, puck, right? Or at least you think you do. The little pixie in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. The merry wanderer of the night. He's kind of a lighthearted piece. One viewer calls it a laugh in marble. Hosmer hopes he will make her some money. And he does. The Prince of Wales buys the original, and soon she's making about 30 copies. On one level, he's a harmless sprite, a naked little cherub with wings, sitting on a toadstool, not going to offend any good Christians. The Prince of Wales, apparently, tells her, Oh, Miss Hosmer, you have such a talent for toes. But... As Charles Colbert points out in his writing on Hosmer and spiritualism, there's nothing in Shakespeare but puck on a toadstool with a beetle in one hand and a lizard in the other. 
Hosmer seems to have dipped into Nordic folklore for those ideas. But also, her puck is some 30 inches high. He's playful, mysterious. He is, it seems, the little spirit who came to visit Hosmer in her bedroom. A dead boy, most likely. Still boyish and spirited, as it were. Happy in the afterlife. So, now Hosmer is famous. Elizabeth Browning says she's going out three times in an evening, where before she would go home at ten, if she left home at all. Eventually, the Jolly Bachelors fall out over jealousies, and Hosmer takes up with the Lady Ashburton in England. And when Elizabeth Browning dies in 1861, the party is pretty much over. It's okay. Hosmer has bigger things in mind. In 1875, she publishes a play called 1975, a prophetic drama. But a couple of men mysteriously mummified in 1875 who wake up a hundred years later in the Egyptian rooms of the British Museum. By the 1970s, she figures, we'll have figured a lot of things out. There's a female prime minister of Britain, a female president of the United States, and something called a patent composite reflector, which enables the transmission of thought. So now everyone's a psychic. Hosmer writes this science fiction while she's working on an invention of her own, a perpetual motion machine powered by magnets, a motor that can run forever, which you're going to need for interplanetary space travel, which is the ultimate spiritualist goal. What good is leaving your earthly body, after all, if you can't leave Earth? For the next 20 years, this is what Hosmer works on, tinkering. First at Lady Ashburton's place in Britain, and then back in the States. Her money is drying up. Her friends are disappearing. She's hardly sculpting anymore. When she leaves Lady Ashburton, her machine is supposed to be on the next steamer. But it never comes. So she goes back to get it. It means that much to her. She keeps saying it will be done in a couple weeks. And then a couple years go by. And then a couple decades. In her play about 1975, one of the characters says that the greatest impediment to progress is a mind unwilling to confront its own potential. And she's not going to walk away 
from her potential. Even if some people say that's exactly what she's doing. She moves back home to Massachusetts. And finally, she files for a patent for a perpetual motion machine. It looks like a giant wheel with three pendulums attached that maybe flop from side to side, like a self-winding clock. It doesn't really work in any case. Not forever. It certainly won't get you to outer space. Instead, Hosmer submits a plan to the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Build a tall spire with a sphere on top, made of glass and lit from inside. Attach long metal arms with little round cars at the end. Cars that you ride in as they rotate around the sphere. Her plan is never built she loses out to the first Ferris wheel, which gets you up high, but Hosmer would get you spiritually high. The sphere is the sun, of course, and the cars are the planets. And as you're sitting out there, going around the sun, you would get, as Hosmer puts it, the sensation of inhabiting other worlds than our own and a view in our own planet, Earth, from a new point in space. For a few minutes, you can imagine yourself breaking free, going to the other side, whatever that means to you. And that could make all the difference. This has been The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. Join us next month for another episode. Subscribe, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And thanks very much for listening.